in the movie Forrest Gump, there's a moment when Forrest feels very lonely. He's heartbroken. Uh, his mother has died, and then the love of his life, Jenny, she reappears, but only to disappear again. And so Forrest walks outside his front door in Greenbow, Alabama, and just begins to run. One day, he says, I just started running. And he runs cross-country, back and forth, for three years. And people are so inspired by him that, that a great number just decide to follow him and begin to run behind him until one day, out of nowhere, Forrest stops and he turns around and he says, I think I'll go back home now. All of the followers are dismayed. They don't know what to do now because they thought, they thought Forrest was running for some great cause, maybe some unseen goal. That's why they followed him. But in the end, he was just running, and then he decided to stop. You know, some of us are very goal-oriented people. You've got a clear vision for not just 10 years or 5 years, but maybe even week by week and day by day. You know what you want to accomplish, what you want out of life. Uh, others of us are a little looser. Uh, we just kind of want to enjoy the journey. It's not so much about setting and achieving goals. But here's the truth. No matter who you are, we're all going somewhere. We're all aiming for something, even if, like Forrest Gump, you can't really define what it is. We're all expending our energy moving in some direction. And so here's a question that's certainly relevant to us as Christians. How does my faith shape my direction? How is Jesus meant to inform my goals and uh, my ambitions? Well, one answer to that, we could say that Jesus comes into our lives and helps us with our ambitions. He helps us make good and wise decisions and then to course correct whenever we get off track. Uh, this is God's way of helping us to set the right kind of goals and ambitions for our lives. Um, they used to put this idea on a bumper sticker. Maybe you've seen it. It says, God is my co-pilot. Because we all want God to help us, to give us direction, to get us where we want to go or where we need to go. But y'all, here in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul gives us a, a different paradigm. Jesus was not Paul's helper there to guide him into the right ambitions. Jesus himself was Paul's ambition. Jesus didn't help Paul achieve his goals. Jesus was the goal. And that's, that's not a small difference. That's not a subtle difference. It's really our key to understanding how the Christian life is meant to be lived, how Christians are meant to shape and follow after ambitions. It's not that Jesus is one of many values and affections and ambitions for our life, but Jesus is the sole and surpassing value, and therefore he is our great ambition. And so our scripture today begins in Philippians 3 verse 10. But I want us to get a fuller context starting back in verse 7. This is something we looked at last week, 
but it bears repeating because it's so foundational, not just for today, but for all of life, that, that the Apostle Paul, we're talking about a man who once tried to earn God's acceptance through his own religious pedigree and activity. He tells us that story. And he was really good at it. He was the best of the best. I mean, he has no trouble admitting that. He was on the top rung of the ladder in so many ways. But then he came to know Jesus Christ. Then came for Paul true transformation. And we see it in verse 7. He says, But whatever things were gain to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And here we go. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. When, when Paul came to faith in Christ, his value system changed, not just by degrees, but entirely, top to bottom, it changed. No longer was Paul defined by his own resume. No longer was he controlled by lesser temporary affections, because now he has discovered the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Now he has received by faith the righteousness which comes from God. And so we notice when we get to verse 10 that Paul sees an outcome to this new way of thinking and being. Uh, there is for Paul a new ambition for life. So it's not just values that he holds internally and privately, but it controls now how he lives. And we see it again. Look again at verse 10. Here's the outcome. Here's Paul's new ambition, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now this, this reads a little bit strangely, so let's unpack it a bit. Paul already knows Jesus and trusts Jesus, of course. He is a Christian as he writes this. But it's his desire to know Jesus more and in more specific ways. He wants to, he's not content, complacent with his present relationship uh, with Christ. He wants to know Christ more and more and more. I want to know, he says, the power of his resurrection. Now, what is that? What is the power of Jesus' resurrection? This is the power that conquers sin and death forever. This is the power that assures us of all God's promises, including our own future resurrection. This is the power that saves us. This is the power that also 
changes us, that transforms our hearts. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says this, As Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too walk in newness of life. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead gives us the power to live now a new and transformed, God-centered life. Paul says, I want to know Christ in that way, the power that comes to me through and because of his resurrection. And then Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, being conformed to his death or being made like him in his death. Now, this is an echo of something Paul actually told us back in chapter 1. At the end of chapter 1, Paul says, It has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake. It has been gifted to you by God, not just to have faith in Jesus, but to suffer for his sake. This is the fellowship of his suffering, sharing in the sufferings of of Christ. And really, of course, this is not, Paul didn't create this idea. This goes back to something Jesus said. Very famously in Luke chapter 9, Jesus speaks of his own suffering, but then he gives us something that we might not expect. This is Luke chapter 9, beginning, I think, in verse 22. Jesus says, the Son of Man, that's talking about himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. And look at the very next verse. And he was saying to them all, right after that, he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Jesus says, I will suffer and die and then rise again. And anyone who wishes to know me and follow me will travel the same path. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and die. Lose your life so that you may truly live. Now, how, do, how, how are we supposed to take up a cross and, and die? Obviously, Jesus does not mean a literal cross in our case. Well, what does that mean? What's he telling us? What's Paul telling us in Philippians 3? Well, the scripture says that we die to sin, and we now live to righteousness. That's essential to what it means to be a Christian. Uh, we put off the old self with its sinful passions. We crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. And we put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and holiness and righteousness and truth. Um, all throughout the scripture, we're given images of death and life. And they're meant to be uh, spiritually understood and then lived out. There's a dying that takes place when we come to know Jesus Christ. Paul said, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I have died in a very real spiritual sense. I have died to what I was and now I've been raised again. I have a new life. We die to everything 
that is not to the glory of God. Uh, another example comes from something that Paul experienced for himself. He gives us a partial testimony in 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, very powerful. When Paul speaks about himself and his companions, the apostles, he's, he, he's talking about them as carriers of the gospel. And he speaks of the gospel, the, the grace of Jesus, as a treasure. But we are an earthen vessel. We're like a jar of clay. The jar is not impressive. The jar is prone to be broken apart, but the treasure is precious and eternal. Listen to what he says. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves, not from ourselves. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, that, that may be a little confusing on the surface, but I, I want us to see what Paul is saying right there. To suffer for Christ's sake gives the appearance of weakness, the earthen vessel, my weakness and frailty, and my temporary earthly body. Sure, the appearance of weakness, but it's actually a display of God's great power. Because the treasure is made manifest. The life of Christ is made manifest even through our weakness and suffering. To lay down our lives for Christ's sake. To lose your life for his sake. Luke 9. That's a display of his life in us. We're not actually losing anything. But we're displaying a new life. A, a, a greater power. A surpassing greatness because it's Christ in us. See, all of this is the opposite of what it appears. And that, the, the point is, of course, when Jesus says, following me means you yourself will experience your own form of suffering and death. That's not to be understood as God punishing us or God abandoning us. Jesus is not trying to drive us away when he says that. He's trying to bring us in this is the fellowship of his sufferings. That's what Paul calls it, and he means that. It's not fancy spiritual language. Listen, if Jesus suffered for you to give you the gift of life in relationship with him, then we understand to follow Jesus, to know Jesus, is not to be trouble-free and comfortable but it's to follow him along the very same path. Because listen, God's, God's ultimate goal is to make you and me more like Christ, to conform us to his image. And therefore, we are given the gift of sharing in his sufferings. We are given the gift of the fellowship of his sufferings. This doesn't mean, of course, that we enjoy suffering. It doesn't mean we ought to go out looking for it. But like Paul, we are meant to embrace 
suffering and death to self as part of knowing Christ and having fellowship with him. This is incredibly difficult for us to stomach, to understand, to apply, because suffering and death for us are so negative. They're so bad. We want to cushion ourselves. We want to run away. But Paul says to know Christ is to know his suffering, his death, and in a, in, in a very real way, we share in those things. Now, I, we, I've spent a lot of time on just one verse, I know. Spare me 30 seconds more, because this is so important. You notice how verse 10 is out of order. What Paul should have said <laughs> is suffering, then death, then resurrection. Isn't that the order? But he puts resurrection first. Because it is by the power of Christ's resurrection that we are able to suffer with hope and endurance. It is because of the resurrection that we are glad to die to the old self and see it not as a loss for us, but as a gain. If I suffer with Christ and for Christ, if I die to the world and to my old self, what am I actually losing in the long run? Jesus said nothing. If you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. You will find it because you will gain Christ. And so it's the power of the resurrection that gives us the power to know Christ in his suffering and his death. We can't miss that. Otherwise, we will run from suffering and we'll never come to know Christ in, that, in those specific ways. Paul wants to know Jesus that way, even if it involves great pain and struggle. Jesus walked that path. Paul says, I want to know him in that way by the power of his resurrection. And this is where, this is where Paul's ultimate desire is pointing. If you look again at verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is, this is Paul's way of saying, my true aim, my true ambition is the day when I will be raised up with Christ and I will know him face to face fully in the new heavens and new earth. I can know Jesus here and now, yes, of course, but I will only know him in full when he brings me into his glory, when he raises me up like him. Um, Y'all, when I visited uh, Central Asia last summer, the population there is, is almost entirely Muslim. My eyes were really opened um, through conversations we had there. Uh, there were people that we spoke with who admitted that they were absolutely terrified of death. They were afraid to die, even though they were people of faith. Because according to their faith, they would be granted paradise eventually, but only after they were first punished for their sins. And, and who knows how long that period of punishment will last. They're not sure. It could be a year. It could be a million years. But they had to endure condemnation first. So for them, the hope of paradise, which lingered out there somewhere, it was swallowed up by their fear of condemnation. Now that continues to break my heart, uh, but it also helps clarify for me 
what I have, what we have in Christ. See, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, that means your condemnation has been taken away. The threat of condemnation is real. We are sinners. We deserve God's judgment. But Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we have no fear of future judgment. Our judgment has already taken place. It's already been dealt with in the past. There's no debt now for us to pay off. God's grace is both full and final. Jesus said it is finished from the cross, and he meant it. Therefore, we can joyfully rest in the love of God. We can rest in our promised future. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear what comes afterward. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, the scripture says. Now, I use that word rest intentionally. To rest in Christ means there's nothing for us to earn. We put all of our trust in him and his achievements, not our own, therefore we can rest. But y'all, rest does not imply complacency or laziness. To rest in Christ, to trust him, actually makes us more ambitious, not less. And that may seem backward, but the Apostle Paul is exhibit A. Paul knew what it was to rest fully in the grace of Jesus. And yet look at what he says, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained it, that is the resurrection, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I have not reached the final goal yet, therefore I press on and I reach forward. This is the language of an athlete who is straining every single muscle at peak performance to get across the finish line, to win the race. And it's an awesome analogy, but maybe a little confusing. What exactly is Paul straining for? Didn't we just say that our trust is in Jesus, not in ourselves, that there is nothing for us to earn, that God's grace is complete? Yeah, see, Paul had no illusions that his own effort was going to earn him anything. That would nullify the gospel he spent his entire life preaching. No, he's talking about reaching for the goal. And what is his goal? He's already told us. Verse 10, that I may know Christ. That is his longing, his ambition, his aim, inside out, top to bottom, beginning to end, I want to know Jesus. And because I'm not there yet, I haven't finished my course yet, I haven't arrived at the resurrection yet, I press on 
that I may lay hold of that for which also Christ Jesus laid hold of me. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ created me, loved me, chose me, came for me, died for me, forgave me, rescued me. He abides in me and calls me his own brother. <laughs> he intercedes for me. He advocates for me. He walks with me. He shepherds me. And Jesus will delight to raise me up in resurrection life one day and allow me to share in his glory forever. Paul says, Jesus Christ has made me his own. Everything I just mentioned and more, Jesus has made me his own. He has laid hold of me. And therefore, I spend all my energy to make him my own, to lay hold of him, to know him in the deepest, most intimate way. That's what I want. See, Paul is not trying to earn something he doesn't already possess. No, he's living to experience the fullness of what he's been given. The God who delights to make himself known to us, we can know him. Paul says, if I can know him, then I want nothing more than to know him fully. Uh, this is what Paul says back in verse 8. He calls it the surpassing value, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And because knowing Jesus is so immeasurably great, there, there's never any room for complacency. There's always more of Jesus for us to know and enjoy. There's no room for laziness. That word rest, to rest in Jesus Christ, does not mean that we just chill out and wait for heaven. But Jesus is God in the flesh, and therefore we will never exhaust him. We'll never get to the bottom of the wonders of his grace and power and goodness and mercy, and, and you just go on forever. Paul says he is immeasurably great. He has surpassing value, and therefore I reach forward always to know him to the full. That's why Paul calls us into it as well. Verse 13, he says, brethren. Remember, he's talking to the church. He's not just reflecting on his own life. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of this yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. I'm not going to rest on my past. I'm not going to live in the past even the good stuff, I will not stay there and become complacent. He says, I forget what lies behind, the bad and the good, because I will forever be reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It is forever ahead of me until the day I'm with him in person face-to-face, -face, and therefore I will press on. I will expend all my energy to know him, the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Y'all, th these are the words of a man who knows he's saved, 
He knows he's going to heaven. That's not up for debate. That's not in question. But there is for Paul a goal, a prize so precious to him that it has his fullest attention, all his ambition. It's the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 2. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. There is an upward call. There is the, the delight of not just getting to heaven, but of knowing Christ in his fullness forever. And I will not rest until I've arrived. We see the difference. This is not earning. This is not trying to achieve God's acceptance. It's already ours. But having come to know Jesus Christ, him having laid hold of us, Paul says, what in the world am I here for if it's not to lay hold of him, to make myself uh, his own and to live my life to know him? What ambition is there that can even touch it? That's the goal. Therefore, verse 15, he brings us all together now. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect. Now, what he means by that is spiritually mature. Nobody's perfect. Let As many of those of us who are mature, let's have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. Paul says, "This, listen, this is not just my personal ambition. Look at me. No, this is the prize, the goal of everyone who knows Christ. It ought to be. If it's not, God will make you aware. God will reveal that to you. And by his grace, we'll never take it for granted. By his grace, we'll live to this standard. We'll take on this attitude, this ambition, the upward call of God in Christ. I feel confident saying this. Uh, all of us value Jesus right where we sit. I assume that to be true. But what my heart needs to hear is this. Jesus is not just valuable. He is surpassingly great. Jesus has a surpassing value about him. So great that all lesser aims and ambitions are swallowed up in the light of his grace. Nothing can stand in competition against him. He is the goal of life. And everything else takes orbit around him. That's why a Christian can never be at peace we can never truly understand what Paul is talking about if we insist on lumping Jesus in with the rest of our values, affections, and ambitions, goals, and aims. We just can't do it. Jesus will not allow it. We try to force him to fit into one of those boxes sometimes, but he doesn't exist there, and he will not remain there. He is surpassingly great, and therefore we must treat him as great. We must treat him as the goal and not try to 
diminish him, lower him into merely our co-pilot. And y'all, this is the attitude I want. I mean, it's, it's obviously it's right, biblically, but in my heart, I want this. I want to be this way. I want to be just like Paul and have this same attitude. But let me acknowledge it. I just have to admit it to myself and to everybody else. This is not the attitude I always have. It's the attitude I want, but it's not the attitude uh, so often that I actually possess. And so my prayer for me and my prayer for us is exactly what verse 15 just told us. That if we don't have this attitude, that God would reveal it to us. Not in a punitive way, but in a way that God, in his fatherly love, will bring us into the right heart and mind to see Jesus for what he really is, as surpassingly great, so that we may begin living like Paul, with no greater passion than to know Christ through and through, to know him beginning to end from the day we first came to believe in him, receive him by faith, until that great day when he raises us up with him and redeems us forever. I want to know him to the full. May God give me, may God give us the grace, the ambition to know our Savior like that. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we're not asking for something small here today. <laughs> uh, we're not asking for just a little help. We're not asking you, Father, to help shape our goals and ambitions. We're asking that you would be our ambition. Jesus Christ, the center of all things, the great King of the universe, the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Jesus, we pray and ask that you would take the, uh, the, the very center place, the very throne of our hearts, and reside there all by your lonesome, all by yourself. Lord, let everything else, the good things in our lives, the good things, let them be uh, let us be content to let those things revolve around you and be informed by you, yes, but never ever to compete with you. Father, if, if you look into my heart right now and you see um, what verse 15 says, that this is not my attitude, then Lord, please reveal it to me. I, I, I know, I trust, Father, that your desire is not to shame us not to uh, whip us into shape, that we would just be more, more diligently obedient to the rules or anything like that. Lord, you're not concerned with um, uh, uh, forcing our hand here to simply be religious. Father, I, I know that you are always desiring, always working to change my heart, to redirect my desire, my affection, and my ambition. And Lord, that's what I pray for, that where, wherever I have tried to diminish Jesus, to minimize his greatness, to shrink him down, to fit with the rest of, of my values, 
simply to help me out along the way. If I've made Jesus anything like that, Lord, bring correction to my heart. Bring repentance to my heart and ours that we may see him for who he is. And in the light of his surpassing value, that we would say just like Paul, I want nothing more than to know him, to lay hold of him, knowing that he has laid hold of us. Father, give us joy in this pursuit. We are not there yet, just like Paul said. We're not there yet. But give us a heart that says, we will press, we will seek, we will run the race of knowing him and make this our greatest delight to run together as your church. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.